We read the Holy Scriptures together in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We read the first 16 verses of the chapter. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called, in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slate of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We read the word of God that far. I call your attention to the first three verses of this chapter. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at our text this morning, we begin with that word, therefore. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. That word, therefore, is a connecting word, and it should teach us, when we find it there, that the text that we consider, the exhortation of our text, is rooted in something that came before the text. It's based on something preceding the text. And the exhortation really flows out of what precedes the text. And what that is, is the whole of the first part of the epistle. If we therefore scan the first three chapters of this epistle, we find that In the first half of the epistle, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus concerning what he will call the unsearchable riches of Christ. In the opening chapter of the epistle, Paul gives a doxology of praise to God for 
the amazing electing grace by which he predestinated us unto the adoption of children in Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace. In chapter 2, the apostle goes on to expound the riches of God's mercy and love toward us that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he quickened us together with Christ and he saved us by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but to be created unto good works, which have been prepared for us from before time, that we should walk in them. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives a beautiful personal confession. A confession that seems to flow out of a heart of amazed wonder when he says, that unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles. And he concludes the first section of his epistle with a prayer. He says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant that you would be strengthened with might in your inner man through the Spirit, and that you would be filled with Christ, and that you would be rooted and grounded in love, and that you would be able to comprehend what is the length and the breadth and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Those are some of the things he writes in the first part of the epistle. In summary, he writes to the church at Ephesus, and he writes to us this morning concerning the unsearchable riches of the grace and mercy of God toward us to save us unworthy sinners. And then he comes in our text and says, Therefore, If all of that is true, and it is, then I beseech you, congregation, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I beseech you, if all of that is true, I exhort you to live the Christian life, beginning with these important points. This text is very practical and relevant for us today on New Year's Day morning as a congregation and as a denomination as well, having gone through very tumultuous years, and now we set forth on a new year. We have in our past, recent past, struggles, division, schism, disruption, and so what a relevant and timely way to begin the new year, to hear the will of God for us, that if he has been so gracious and merciful to us, then as the apostle says, I beseech you, I beseech you, that you walk worthy of that vocation and endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. I call your attention to the text under that theme, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. We notice, first of all, the call to guard our unity Secondly, the way of humility and love. Finally, the walk worthy of a Christian. The Apostle beseeches us this morning that we walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, and then this, 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now what we have to notice right away is that the Apostle is not exhorting us, he's not beseeching us to create the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To establish it, to create it. Because that's something that we cannot do. And that's not something that God calls us to do. That's the reason He sent His only begotten Son into the world. To do that. To do that thing that we can't do. That none of us can do. None of us could do. There's only one who can do that. And that's Christ. And that's what the Apostle has already taught earlier in the epistle in chapter 2. When he is unfolding the unsearchable riches of Christ. Notice what he writes in chapter 2 verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. God sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that by giving himself to the accursed death of the cross, by shedding His own divine, human, precious blood on the tree of the cross for us. He would break down the wall of hostility and partition and He would make out of us one new man. He would create a unity in the human race. The broken human race. The sinful, hostile human race. The human race which flows from Adam, our first head. And in Adam, we all fell into sin. And the human race became a battlefield of hostility and division and hatred and war. But Christ came into the world so that through the blood of His cross, He might make out of the human race, out of all of God's elect people and all the nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues throughout all the ages, one new man. Christ came to establish the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace between rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, men and women. Out of all of the vast diversity of humanity, He came to make a church. One church his own body, so that the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace of which the Apostle speaks now in our text is a reality brought about by Christ and it rests upon the atoning sacrifice of Christ for us, for you, for me on the cross. And that applies to you as a congregation. That's something that you ought to remember as a congregation. Your unity as a congregation rests upon the atoning sacrifice and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for you, for your sins, to save you. And what we need to remember is that the Lord Jesus didn't come into the world only to die on that cross to shed His precious blood for my sins. Or for the sins of my wife or husband and children. But He died on the cross and shed His precious blood to pay for the sins of my brothers and sisters in the congregation too. 
He didn't just come to die on the cross to pay for the sins of the people that I like and get along with. The people in my friend group, my social group, the people that I hang out with on the weekends. But he came to shed his precious blood on the cross also for those people in those other groups, social groups, friend groups, even those groups of people with whom I have many differences of opinion. He died for them. He shed his blood for them. To establish the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christ did that. Through the blood of Christ, there is a bond of peace between every believer and among all believers throughout the whole of the world and also within a local congregation. A bond of peace. And bonds of peace. And now, our Lord Jesus Christ, having triumphantly risen from the dead and ascended up into heaven, pours forth His Holy Spirit into the world to bring that precious unity into existence and into expression in local congregations and denominations. And that's why we read of the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is through His Spirit and through His Gospel that the Lord Jesus realizes, brings into existence this unity that He accomplished at the cross. He sends His Holy Spirit into the world with the Gospel, with the preaching of the Gospel, so that the Spirit goes with that gospel. He goes before it. He goes alongside of it. He goes under it and with it and through it. And the Holy Spirit saturates himself with that preaching of the gospel as it goes out through missions and local congregations. And wherever the pure preaching of the gospel takes place, there the Holy Spirit is working, gathering, gathering, gathering the elect out of the nations and establishing the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace as he builds local congregations of believers and their seed throughout the world. Spirit does that. We don't do that. We don't create that unity. That's God's work. Through Christ on the cross and by his Holy Spirit working in the midst of the world. The Holy Spirit through the gospel works in the hearts of the elect, so that they hear the gospel, they receive and believe the gospel, and therefore all the elect believers are joined together by that common faith in Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And so the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace of which the Apostle speaks in our text is not a unity of institution. It's not, an inst it's not, first of all, an institutional unity. It's not, first of all, a unity of tradition, a unity of race, a unity of culture, a unity of language. It's a spiritual unity that transcends all of these things. He goes on in the chapter to call it the unity of faith. It's the unity of faith. It's a spiritual, spirit-worked unity of faith. The unity is that we are all believers. We all have a true and living faith worked in us by the Holy Spirit in Jesus. That's the unity. And so it transcends all of these natural distinctions and natural differences between men and women and all the different races and nationalities and kindreds and tribes and tongues. That's the unity that the Spirit forges in the midst of the world. That's your unity as a congregation. Your unity as a congregation is not, first of all, that you are all, or most of you, are of Dutch Reformed tradition and heritage. That's not it. 
Your unity as a congregation is not even that, not first of all, that you are all Protestant Reformed. That you're all members of a Protestant Reformed church, which is part of the Protestant Reformed denomination. That's not, first of all, what that unity is. The unity that the Spirit forges in the midst of the world is a spiritual unity of faith. The Spirit creates bonds of peace between all true believers, wherever they are, whatever color skin they have, whatever language they speak, and even whatever denomination they might be in. Now that unity of the Spirit, that unity that the Spirit forges in the world on the basis of the atoning sacrifice of Christ does come to expression in local congregations and in denominations of like-minded believers. It's a unity of faith. It's a unity of confession. It's a unity in the truth. Because the gospel is the truth. And the Spirit works through the gospel. And it's that true gospel through which the Spirit works faith in all of the elect and binds them together by their common belief in a common Lord, a common God, a common faith, a common salvation. One truth. And you'll never find a believer on earth who knows and holds to the truth perfectly. And yet the Holy Spirit so works in the hearts of the elect that they do come to the knowledge of the truth and the love of the truth and belief of the truth and confession of the truth and standing for the truth of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith as revealed in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit forges that unity among all believers and among us who together confess the doctrines contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and as taught in this Christian church, the doctrines contained in the three forms of what? Unity. Because those three forms express the true, unsearchable riches of the doctrines of Christ. And so together we say, I believe that, I confess that. We all say it, we all say it together. I believe that, I confess that. And that's our unity. That's the Spirit-worked unity. So as we look around at our brothers and sisters in the congregation who took the same confession of faith promise as us and who live an outwardly godly life, members in good standing in the congregation, we say about those brothers and sisters, we're one. You and I, we're one. There's a bond of peace between us. We might not hang out together every weekend. We might not move in the same social circles. We might not be related in the same family tree. We might not have the same color of skin. We might not even speak the same language, but we're one. And there's a bond of peace between us. And you as a congregation are one manifestation of what the apostle calls in chapter 3, verse 15, the whole family in heaven and earth. The whole family. There's one family. Some of the family is in heaven. Some of the family is on earth. And you as a congregation are one manifestation of that whole family. Brothers and sisters, you are with one another. The Spirit has forged unity between us and among us 
And that unity is so precious. We think of Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And in our text, the apostle beseeches us that we will walk in a certain way that we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And when he calls us to keep the unity, he means to guard it. It's precious, but it's fragile. It's like a piece of your grandmother's beautiful, precious china that you know if you drop on the ground, it's going to shatter to a million pieces and you don't want that to happen. So you carry it with care. Because of its preciousness and its fragility. The calling to keep the unity is a calling to guard it to protect it, to maintain it, to nurture it, to love it, to take care of it with all your might. That's what it means. And there's a need for this exhortation. There must be a need for it because the apostle was inspired to write it in the scriptures and the need for the exhortation is that we are still the church on earth. We're part of that family of God on earth, the militant church. And although we are righteous in Christ, We are still sinners by nature. And because of our sinful nature, we still fight, we still bicker, we still murmur, we still gossip and backbite and slander and engage in all kinds of sinful activities, even against brothers and sisters in the church. And so there's a need to hear the exhortation because of the fragility of this precious unity that the Holy Spirit has worked and works in the church. It's vulnerable to threats, so many threats. And although the unity itself cannot ultimately be damaged, it is secure in the blood of the cross, and it will come to full realization in the world to come. But here in this world, in its expression, it is vulnerable to being broken. The Apostle was well aware of that. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 13, he wrote to the church at Corinth, which was a broken congregation, I beseech you, brethren, do you hear that again? I beseech you. You hear the heart of the Apostle there? You hear his longing, his pleading with the church? I beseech you, brothers. I love you. I love you, and I beseech you. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This ought not to be, brethren, he's saying to the church at Corinth. This ought not to be that there are all these contentions, all these divisions, and that one is following one leader and one is following another leader. That ought not to be. Speak the same thing. I beseech you. But here in our text, the apostle is writing to a healthy congregation, the church at Ephesus. When you read the passage, you don't see any evidence that there was any real, real disruption there at the time. There may have been, as there always is in a congregation, difficulties, troubles, and strife. But he writes to them as if they are a healthy congregation that needs to grow and mature more and more. And he says to them even, I exhort you, I beseech you, that you endeavor, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Guard it. Protect it. Nurture it. It's fragile. For a multitude of reasons and in a multitude of ways, mutiny can take place in the congregation. Discord, sectarianism, division, schism. Endeavor. How quickly do we fallen sinful human beings polarize? How quickly do we polarize? Into left and right. Into us and them. The good guys and the bad guys. Those who understand and those who don't understand. That ought not to be. Guard the unity, the unity of the Spirit. We are all one family in Christ. When brothers cannot get along in the congregation, when they cannot stop fighting, disagreeing, particularly on non-essentials, matters that may be important, but they're not the essentials of the three forms of unity, the essential doctrines of the Scriptures, and there's differences of opinion and disagreement, and there's, dis- uh, there's constant fighting with one another, That's not endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. In the Beatitudes, our Lord Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace. Blessed are those who do the hard, hard work of making peace because being a peacemaker sounds all nice and wonderful, doesn't it? Oh, yes, I'm a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker. Do you? Do you really? Being a peacemaker is hard work. It's being able to deal with confrontation. And as we'll see in a moment, in a certain manner, it's being able to deal with issues and differences in a brotherly way, in a a way of love, and to work them out, to come to one mind, endeavoring, Let's not overlook that word endeavoring. The word endeavoring means striving. Putting forth every effort. That's why I said, with all your might, guard the unity of the Spirit. With all your might. Put forth every effort. Strive. Exert yourself with blood, sweat, and tears to guard this fragile, precious unity that Christ died to give us. We as a denomination have gone through a split. We're on the other side of the split. We still feel the reverberations of it. We still feel the pain of it. But even at this present time, there are still issues among us and within our churches that threaten the fragility of our unity in Christ. Isn't it timely for us at the beginning of a new year as we look forward to 2023? What are we going to do in the Protestant Reformed churches in 2023? And it starts with you. It starts with me. None of us should be sitting here and thinking to ourselves now, yes, yes, I'm glad our elders are hearing this. Yes, I'm glad that family is hearing this. Yes, I'm very glad that that person is hearing this. They need to hear this. No, you need to hear it. I need to hear it. What are you going to do in this new year? when it comes to endeavoring to guard the precious unity of the Spirit. Romans 12, verse 18, the apostle writes in a very similar passage, the practical section of that epistle, Romans 12, 18, as much as in us lies, as much as is possible, let us live peaceably with all men. 
Now, how do we do this? The apostle lays out the manner in verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. First of all, with all lowliness. If I am proud, if you are proud, and if we walk around and we behave ourselves in the church in pride, It's not going to be a surprise if we break the unity by our actions. Pride does that. Pride causes disruption in relationships, disruption in marriages, disruption in families, disruption in congregations and denominations. Don't be proud. I say that to me and to you. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't think that you know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. Don't think that you are always right. I'm not always right. You're not always right. Don't think that you're better than others. You're not. I'm not. With all lowliness, when we are endeavoring to live and to walk humbly with our God, as Micah calls us to do in the prophets, then we're endeavoring to guard the unity of the Spirit. And when the Apostle sets forth lowliness or humility as the manner in which we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, he doesn't at all mean to question the need for courage. Sometimes those things can be pitted against each other. No, he doesn't mean to set aside the importance of boldness, of taking a stand of your convictions, of speaking the truth and doing what is right, even when it's hard. He doesn't mean that. Sometimes people who are bold and courageous and take a stand, they're accused of being arrogant. That's not necessarily true. But he means that when you take a stand, when you speak the truth with conviction, do it with humility. Do it with all lowliness. Lowliness Even the word itself, you think of it, lowliness. What's low? That's down there. We so often are standing up and having our heads held high, but lowliness means you're down there. And more particularly, lowliness means, or humility means, that you know who you are and what you are in relation to God. God's up there. I'm down here. God is the most high, I'm the most low. God is great, I'm small. God is the almighty King of kings and Lord of lords, and I am a puny creature made of dust, a vapor, here, today, gone, tomorrow, and a sinner yet. God, now He is always right. Now He is always true. He is always faithful. He is always pure. He is always righteous. He always does justice. But I don't. I don't. I'm flawed. I fail. I make mistakes in my logic. And then lowliness means I understand who and what I am in relation to everybody else. Humility for me, Reverend Daniel Holsteg, is in part, that I understand who and what I am in relation to all of you. And that I don't think about myself in relation to you, that I know everything, I have all the answers and you don't. 
and I don't need to listen to you. But lowliness and humility means that I recognize I don't have all the answers. I don't always know what to do. I don't always know what is right. But you might, you might know the answers. God might have spoken to you and given some insights to you that he didn't give to me. So humility means I'll listen to you. And you'll listen to each other. Truly listen to what others are saying. And just think of the apostle. In chapter 3 of this epistle, the apostle Paul, wasn't he the greatest theologian of the church? The vessel, the instrument that God used to inspire the writing of these glorious epistles that set forth all that glorious theology that is our reformed faith, our three forms of unity. The apostle Paul said unto me who am less than the least. That's what he said about himself. Unto me who am less than the least of all the saints. Because I persecuted the church. Unto me, unto me, this grace is given. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That wasn't a sham humility. He wasn't just trying to portray himself as humble. He didn't just want the people to think that he was humble. He truly believed that. He truly knew that about himself. There is a sham humility. There's a false humility. There's such a thing as a person who doesn't take a stand. And people say, oh, he's so humble. But actually, he's not at all. He's the most arrogant person you've ever encountered. And his heart is full of himself. That exists. This is not a sham humility. Sham humility does nothing for the unity of the church. True humility does. Sincere humility of the heart that actually believes I am less than the least of all saints. Who am I? Who am I? I'm nothing. In the second place, the apostle beseeches us that we walk worthy of our vocation with all meekness. Meekness or gentleness? Gentleness. Meekness. If I live within the family of God, within the congregation, or within my marriage, or family, or for that matter, if I live in such a way that I'm constantly speaking harshly and severely, Whenever someone disagrees with me, I return evil for evil, tit for tat, word for word, criticism for criticism. I can't help myself. And when I criticize, I criticize harshly, severely. I cut them down with abrasive words that breaks the unity, breaks it. When we go around slandering, backbiting, gossiping, and in all of those things, because you don't backbite in a calm and mild and gentle manner, you backbite and you gossip using cutting words, don't you? Abrasive words. Because you want to bring that person down. That destroys the expression of the unity of the Spirit. It's like Grandma's fragile China, the unity of the church. If you let it slip, it will shatter. Gentleness, meekness, You can be bold 
You can be courageous. You can be a convicted person. You can know the truth in your heart. You can know what is right in your heart. And you can be gentle too. You can. You can do that with gentleness. So often when difficult subjects come up, issues in the church come up, in conversation among ourselves, we let our emotions run wild. When we do that, we start to lose the ability to be meek and gentle. We're a family. How does it go in a good, healthy family? How does a mother speak to her children when they do wrong? When she has to confront them, when she has to admonish them. A good mother does not cut down her little one with abrasive and cutting words that traumatize the child. A good mother speaks gently and points out the error that's wrong and disciplines firmly, boldly, but gently. So the Apostle Paul writes about his own ministry among the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. That's how gentle we were, because you were dear unto us. We weren't just there in the pulpit preaching or down there teaching as if everybody else has to learn from what I say. But we were willing to impart to you our own souls. We were willing to die for you. Are you willing to do that? Beloved, this applies not just to you, but to me, to your pastor, to your elders, to your deacons, to our professors in the seminary, to our principals in our schools, and our teachers in our schools, and everybody in positions of authority and influence and power. 2 Timothy 3 or two, rather, verse 24, Paul says to Timothy, a man, a pastor, in a position of authority in the church, Timothy, the servant of the Lord, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Timothy, if there's someone sitting there in your office, someone you're talking to, and they're opposing you. They disagree with you. Be patient, meek, gentle. I've been reading a recent biography of Martin Luther. And I was struck by something in the history of his stand at the Diet of Worms in 1521. You remember in 1517 he posted the, the 95 Theses and from 1517 to 1521 the whole church and the whole empire was thrown into disruption and an uproar and Martin Luther was branded as a heretic. He was excommunicated by the Pope. He was called before the emperor at the Diet of Worms and he thought he might be executed. His friends told him, don't go, but he went. 
And he stood before the emperor. He stood before the delegation of the pope. He stood before bishops and princes and electors, the most powerful people in the empire of that day. And he boldly took a stand for the truth. And we all know what he said. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. My conscience is bound to the scriptures. And I cannot budge. But that's not what struck me. We all know that. When he was asked if these books on the table belonged to him, did you write these books? He said, yes, I wrote those books. And he said, do you recant those books? And he said, I need to think about that. Give me one night. So the next day he came back for the diet. The council. And he said, those are my books. But they're in three different categories. The first category of my books are basic Christian piety. Nobody disagrees with them. I can't recant those books. The second category of my books This is what struck me. How much of us remember this? The second category of my books, in that category of my books, I admit, I was too caustic. I admit, I was too severe. I was too harsh. When I named persons, when I named specific people, I did that in those books. I named people by their names. But I admit, Publicly, before these great and noble people, I admit I was wrong. I was wrong on that point. I was too harsh. I shouldn't have said those things. But I can't recant those books. They contain the truth of the Word of God. You see? You can be bold. You can be courageous. You can take a stand. And you can be gentle. Thirdly, Long-suffering. With long-suffering. Do you have a short temper? If you have a short temper, probably you're causing a lot of problems in your relationships. If you have a short temper, you probably are going to cause division in the church, in the denomination. Are you easily provoked? Are you easily irritated and annoyed? He exhorts us to long suffering, suffering long, suffering for a long time. We don't like to suffer. We don't like to suffer injustice. We don't like to suffer affliction. We don't like to suffer in the sense of endure people who don't think like us, who don't agree with us, who even criticize us, irritate us, annoy us, who keep us up at night thinking over and over and over again about them. But if we have a short temper and short patience, how are we going to guard the unity, the precious, fragile unity in the church? We need to be long-suffering. James 1, verse 19, he exhorts us to be slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to wrath. Slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to wrath. Is that true of you? Slow to speak. I think I'm rather quick to speak. And I think I need to slow down. Do you need to slow down? Slow to speak. Swift to hear. Ears open. I'm listening to you. I want to hear you. Ears open. Slow to wrath. I'm not going to get angry at you no matter what you say. Even if I disagree with you. You're my brother. I'm not going to be wrathful toward you, slow to wrath. 
long-suffering patience, forbearing one another in love. Love is the fourth thing, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing is like long-suffering. You're bearing up with others, and you're doing that in love. It all comes down to love, doesn't it? It all comes down to love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. What's your New Year's resolution? May I suggest that in 2023 I will abound yet more and more in love for my husband and my wife and my children, for my brothers and sisters in the congregation. And now think of a specific individual or a specific group of individuals in the church or in the denomination whom you struggle to love and now say, that's my New Year's resolution, to love them. To love them. And what does that mean? Well, the apostle lays that all out in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember the troubled church of Corinth, the more excellent way of love. How do we get through all this division? How do we get out of it? He says, Yes, yes, desire the best gifts, but I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am nothing. Verse 4, charity suffereth long, charity is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love isn't suspicious. Love believeth all things. Love isn't pessimistic. Love hopes all things. Love is forward-thinking, positive, optimistic, that in this way, God will bless us. 1 John 4, verse 11, Beloved, John writes, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Christ died for me. Show God's love for me, and I ought to love my brothers and sisters in the church. Finally, the apostle, he says in the first verse of the text, I beseech you, brethren, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And just briefly, as we conclude, He beseeches us to walk worthy of our calling, what we've been called to, and what we are now called. He beseeches us. He doesn't stand over us like a cruel dictator and point his finger down at us and say, you better do this or else. But think of Romans 12, verse 1, when he wants to urge them to Christian living. He says, I beseech you. He says the same thing there. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. I appeal to the mercies of God. The mercies that God has shown to you. And that's the whole first part of this epistle. Therefore, therefore, brethren, if God has elected you from all eternity to be one of His children, if He has given His Son to die on the cross for your sins, if He has quickened you together with Christ when you were dead in trespasses and sins, and if through His Spirit He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, and if God now calls you His child, and if God calls you a believer and calls you a Christian and promises you everlasting life so that now what you are called is a child of God. That's what you're called. Walk worthy of what you are called. There's a walk that is not worthy of the name child of God. And there is a walk that is worthy of that name. Walk worthy of your name because you're not worthy of that name. 
I'm not worthy of that name. But God has graciously given you that name. Walk worthy of it. Is that a good commitment as we enter into a new year? To walk worthy of my name in all aspects of life and in the church. May God grant unto you and to me to walk worthy of our name and to endeavor to guard the unity of the Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to Thee for Thy word of truth. We pray that the applications made to us may have been made and received in the spirit in which they ought to be. And we pray that Thou wilt apply Thy word in this text to each of us as we go into a new year. We pray, Father, that Thou wilt preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in our midst and in our churches. That Thou wilt restore peace where peace has been lost. That Thou wilt strengthen unity where it has been weakened. That Thou wilt impress upon each one of us our personal calling and the role that we are to play in that. Forgive us Father, when we have failed to do this so many times, and make us to know again that we are righteous and forgiven in the blood of Christ, and in that power and strength of knowing our name as a child of God, give us the strength to go forward today walking worthy of that name. In Jesus' name, amen.